Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with co-host Eric Trexler. Eric, we got a special, special program today, yes? We do, we do, we do. Let's hit the intro and see if we have to re-record it this week. <laughs> All right. Joining us today is Dmitry Alperovich. He's the co-founder of Think Tank Silverado Policy Accelerator and also the co-founder of CrowdStrike. Welcome to the podcast, Dmitry. Great to be back with you guys. All right. Well, where to start, Eric? I mean, Dimitri, you, <sighs> you've been in the news a lot lately. Um, I've been following your Twitter, which has been fascinating. Um, but I would love to start uh, with, I think, is a really, really great um, initiative that you've stood up with the Johns Hopkins with the Alperovich Institute. Could you share that with folks? Because I know that was recently um, kind of launched right on the top of the International Spy Museum on the roof. It was. It was. We had Secretary Mayorkas there um, uh, from Homeland Security. We had uh, Jen Easterly from CISA, Rob Silver, Summer Secretary of Policy at DHS. We had senior leadership from the FBI and the intelligence community there. So just a fantastic crowd, along with uh, many private sector attendees, including your very own Eric Tressler. Thank you for for. I represented Rachel uh, for coming. Uh, it was a great event, and it was all about really something that we wanted to do, which is give back to the community and fo focus on one of the key issues we have in cybersecurity today, in my opinion, which is workforce development. We don't have enough people in this field and we don't have enough people that appreciate <clears throat> the intersection between the technology and policy, which I think is a critical thing that you need to have if you're going to have a career in this field. It's not just about the bits and bytes. It's about understanding how policy moves in this town the geopolitical ramifications of cyber. Um, I've long said, and in fact, Secretary Mayorkas quoted me on that in his remarks, that uh, we don't have a cyber problem. We have a Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea problem, which presents significant challenges to us in cyber. But you can't disconnect cyber from the <clears throat> geopolitical um, uh, fight that we're in <clears throat> uh, with these nations, <clears throat> uh, geopolitical competition. So the Alperovich Institute, it's going to be hosted inside the School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, at Johns Hopkins University, one of the leading uh, international affairs schools um, in the country, uh, really in the world, um, in, in one of the top universities in the world. And um, it's going to be led by a, a terrific professor, Dr. Thomas Ridd, one of the leading academics, who really understands that in cyber, more than in virtually any other field, you really need to engage with the private sector. That's where... All the data is they're on the front lines of these attacks. So he's been pioneering a lot of the cyber research in academia in terms of going back and looking at past attacks. Uh, one of his um, fascinating investigations in recent years was to go back to Moonlight Maze, which occurred 20 years ago when the Russians famously started um, um, hacking the Pentagon and other national security systems and to actually go back and sort of reinvestigate that case. And he actually discovered the server that was hacked, uh, that was used for the command and control servers by the Russians in the UK. He found that server. He found the logs from that server. Wait a minute. 20 minutes, 20 years 20 later, years it's still later, running? 20 years later. And <clears throat> managed to trace it 
um, some some of the indicators from that 20 year old hack to some of the more recent attacks we've seen from Russia to connect it to some of the recent intrusions and activities. So um, uh, really pioneer work on many, many fronts that he has done. He's the author of the Active Measures book. Um, it came out last year on the history of um, information operations um, to really highlight that this has um, been going on for over 100 years, that this is not new, um, despite um, you know all the brouhaha over the last few years about Facebook and Twitter and, and um, social media trolls and bots. <clears throat> but um, the goal is really to develop the next cadre of professionals in this field. Uh, there's going to be three key elements from an educational perspective um, in this institute. Uh, one is that we're going to offer a master's program um, in um, strategics, um, uh, cybersecurity, and intelligence studies. It's going to be called MASCI. Uh, we spent a lot of time working on that acronym. Uh, and I was going to say, I got to write that one down. Uh, and it's going to be a one-year program um, and uh, really target professionals. So um, Johns Hopkins does a really good job with Incise to offer nighttime classes. They have people from the intelligence community, from parts of the government, private sector, uh, getting these degrees. And we, we're going to be um, doing the same thing where, you know, if you're if you have a full time job in the government or even in the private sector, you can still um, take classes and, and within a year um, get a really great degree in cybersecurity, master's degree. <clears throat> There's going to be a Ph.D. program as well. Um, we're, we're recruiting two Ph.D. candidates right now for a fully funded Ph.D. program <clears throat> starting next fall. And the goal um, behind the Ph.D. program is to build the next cadre of professors. So Thomas is great, but. Unfortunately, Thomas won't live forever, and uh, we need some some people to come out. And occasionally, he does take sabbaticals and vacations. Uh, so we need we need a bigger cadre of people that will um, <clears throat> not be sort of taking the mantle and carrying this on. Because one of the things that's really important to me with this institute is to make it sustainable and make sure it carries on long after I'm gone from this planet. And uh, because I do think that the cyber issues will continue for for a very long time. And then the third element is going to be an executive education program, which is going to be probably about a week to eight days um, program uh, for senior leaders in government, sort of think general officers or um, senior SES professionals and senior private sector leaders, CEOs and, and senior executives at companies to come together for you know a week or, or a few more days um, uh, at um, Johns Hopkins to really deep dive into strategic cyber issues that they need to know in the course of their um, daily jobs um, and, and think about um, how to apply those lessons um, in their in their respective fields. Um, it's got also going to be a great networking opportunity. <clears throat> the Institute is going to be host, hosted in a great location at 555 Pennsylvania Avenue, which is um, the old museum building that Johns Hopkins has bought and is currently renovating. It is um, just perfect location, an incredible building. Um, uh, that's right in between Congress and the White House and Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, it's going to have amazing views of all of D.C. on the roof of that building. Um, and that's where the, um, at the, at the top floor of that building is where the executive education program is going to be um, hosted. So couldn't be more excited about this. Uh, you know, encourage all of your listeners to take a look. Applications are due December 15th for the May program and for the Ph.D. program. We'll provide more information on the exec ed program in, in the new year. Uh, but people that are interested in, in applying should, should take a look at that. Um, also, for people that are already experts in cyber 
We're looking for adjunct professors, guest lecturers. We have an incredible cadre of people that have already signed up to, to lecture uh, from industry. So we have people from CrowdStrike and FireEye and Facebook and many other people that are going to be teaching courses um, in, in the May program. So you're going to get incredible exposure to the best of the best um, of the industry. Um, and it's going to be, I think, um, really, really valuable. And of course, companies that want to um, um, provide uh, assistance and sponsorship opportunities um, in terms of scholarships for students, uh, we, we are uh, we would be delighted to, to to have their support too. Dimitri, is there a is is there a program out there today that other than this that blends policy and the technology together in the in the same type of way? I can't think of mm -hmm. anything. There, there really isn't, and that was the goal for me to start this program. Look, there's a lot of great programs out there. I'm a beneficiary of one from my alma mater, Georgia Tech, which was a terrific program. I was the first graduate out of their master's program uh, 20 years ago now, uh, dating myself here. Um, but it was a technical program. So um, it had a few policy right. components, but really not what you need, in my opinion, to now marry the strategic studies, intelligence studies. Um, uh, Thomas is, is, a, is a scholar of intelligence and has deep relationships with the intelligence community. In fact, John McLaughlin, the former acting director of the CIA is gonna be one of the lecturers as well wow. uh, in this program. So you're gonna have just incredible exposure to really the best of the best thinkers, both on cyber issues, but also intelligence and strategy and, um, and policy. Wow. Yeah, Clear, clearly, if, if anybody's read your, your, your writings, of any type lately, I mean, you re they recognize that there is a need to fuse that that diplomacy, that policy with the technology piece. Yeah, the bit, bits and bytes are very important. Other. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I spent my career in the industry building technologies to help thwart cyber attacks, critical, but that alone will not solve it. And we need policy, we need people to ultimately um, have that triad of technology policy people to, to address and, and minimize the risk here. And, and we have underspent in the other two areas. Yeah. Clearly, clearly. And, and in the, in the technology area where we, where we've still underspent and we continue to underspend, we'll never be able to spend enough. There, there's no way to play defense and win uh, with just technology. So, so let's transition to the policy accelerator then. What's the difference between the, the Alperovich Institute, which is there to educate and train and Silverado Policy Accelerator, which you started up, I believe, in 21 also. Correct. We, we launched uh, Silverado Policy Accelerator <clears throat> earlier this year in February. Um, so, so, you know, the Alperovitch Institute is an academic program. It's part of Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins is running it. You know, you get the you know, Maryland certified um, graduate degrees and uh, education certificates in the exec ed program. So that, that's sort of one piece of um, the puzzle in terms of trying to build the next cohort of, of leaders and and uh, policy thinkers in this space. So the Rider Policy Accelerator is all about action. It's about how do we move policy along on some critical issues that our country desperately needs to improve our position in. Um, and sort of the broad theme for us is the renewed great power competition, the rise of China, the, the, the threat that it presents to our livelihood, to our economy, to our national security, and how do we best address it in a couple of key areas where we um, have some unique expertise. So as you might imagine, I, I, I know a couple of things about cyber. So cyber is one of the areas that 
uh, we're focused on, but it's not the only area. So we have two other areas that we think are critical in this new age of great power competition. So the, the, the second um, area is our trade and industrial security um, policy area. One of the key elements um, that we're focused on there is semiconductors and securing the supply of semiconductors. Uh, by the way, we don't have a cyber problem if there's no semiconductors. We will not have any computers, so problem solved, but um, we'll be living yeah, in the stone you, ages. You know, it's, it's interesting. I just ordered a new MacBook and it was overnight shipping, but it sat in China for 11 days, lost in customs. Right. And, and my thought was, if they ever wanted to shut us down, they just, they could, they could arbitrarily leave things in customs or they could just, they could, they could offensively just stop us from receiving equipment. We definitely have an issue. Well, I know they're listening to this podcast, so I'm sure they're looking for that MacBook right now yeah, to deliver we, it to you very quickly, do. Uh, but make sure it comes maybe It's with delivering today, luckily, but I was sweating it for a while. I mean, it's, it just sat there with no visibility. Apple couldn't do anything because it was in the system. UPS couldn't do anything because it was in the system. And it just, it reminded me how powerless as a nation we can be when the supply chain requires external or third parties that we can't just control with a remote control. Yeah, well, and you know, uh, it may be, you know, they're having COVID issues that with their zero COVID policy where they're shutting things down anytime they uh, find one case of COVID. So it may be that um, they're not as efficient as they used to be. So when they were trying to- Well, that's they what they said, that's a, what UPS When said. they were trying to put a bug into a computer, you know, before it would take an hour, now it takes 11 <laughs> days. So um, that could be the cause of some of the delays. <laughs> Yeah, that could be. That could be. They definitely said there were COVID COVID delay related delays yeah. coming from UPS, but it could have just been, oh, this is going to Eric, Rachel's co-podcaster. We need to get some <laughs> we need to get some extra equipment into exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. A, a little present for Christmas for you. So but the third area, right. um, um, the third pillar of our work is what we call an ecosec, the intersection between ecological and economic security sort of in this new push on climate change and net zero policy, how do we make sure that we are continuing to think about the national security implications of this changeover in our energy supplies? And, you know, for, for many decades now, a lot of people in the national security circles have been concerned about our dependence on fossil fuels from a national security perspective because it, it introduces this dependency on the Middle East and all the wars that we've been involved in in, in, in that region over, over a number of decades now. But the last thing we want from our perspective at Silverado is to change out that dependence on the Middle East for a dependence on China, because suddenly we're all going right. solar, but the solar panels are built in China. So um, that would be disastrous. And we need to be thinking about how we transition to green energy and renewables, but making sure that the jobs, the national security supply chain is still located ideally here in the United States, but if not all here, that it's um, dependent on our allies and not countries that are diametrically opposed to our interests like China. Right. So we're seeing progress on the on the semiconductor fabs, right, from Intel and AMD and others, which are, <clears throat> are, are looking to expand. I think Pat Gelsinger, CEO, CEO of Intel, said that, you know, They'll have some capability coming online in 23, 2023 at this point. So, so, so what it, about the, so, so, so okay, the problem ahead. is actually much broader than that. So everyone's sort of focused on the advanced, um, what's called leading edge yeah. nodes, um, sort of the five nanometer, three nanometer technologies, 
um, that produce the most advanced chips. Those are the chips that go into your phone, into your MacBook. They, they power cloud applications and the like. But actually, when you think about it, the vast majority of the market, over 80% of the market, is actually on the trailing edge. It's the 65 nanometer technology, the 28 nanometer technology. All of our weapon systems, all of our tanks, all of our battleships, all, all of our cars. Uh, aircraft carriers, um, missiles, they're, they're not using the leading edge. They don't need to use the leading edge. They're using these old technologies. Well, and it takes too long to get it through the through the supply? Correct. Through the, through the, <clears throat> the acquisition process. But also, if you just look around your room edge. right now, literally almost everything in your room, probably except for your phone and your laptop, is going to use trailing edge chips. Your TV, your microwave, your fridge, yeah. your... Um, <clears throat> Um, uh, your car, um, so we, your planes that you're flying on, all of those are using older generation technologies. Um, and right now, much of that supply chain comes from Taiwan. And um, the, the challenge with that, of course, is that it's a single point of failure. Taiwan uh, is situated 90 miles off the coast of China, and China over the last couple of years have been extremely belligerent towards Taiwan, of course, and there's a great concern about an invasion. So imagine a situation where China invades and either takes over those fabs or those fabs get destroyed in the course of invasion. That would be disastrous for us. It would be disastrous for the world. Uh, we would lose massive supply of, of chips that, that is not easy to recon reconstitute. I mean, we have a huge shortage of chips right now that you've just talked about, um, and we don't even have uh, you know, any fabs down. Right, it's just COVID right. related. So, so yeah. imagine if that capacity went offline, it would be, uh, you know, it would literally throw the world into the stone ages for a number of years. Um, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to get main parts for planes. Planes would have to start, uh, um, you know, being grounded. Um, you know, new cars, you no know, new microwaves. You can't sell homes because you don't have HVAC systems, right? Uh, all of the reper repercussions would be just absolutely disastrous. And by the way, it's not even a, concerned just about China invading Taiwan, but you have uh, earthquake um, scenarios that could um, impact those fabs, typhoons. Um, there's a huge water shortage in Taiwan right now because of droughts. Um, semiconductor industry is incredibly um, pandemic. So you, you have a huge problem there. And that is one of the reasons why um, Congress is working to pass this CHIPS Act. Hopefully they pass it this year. It's going to allocate $52 billion to domestic production of chips here in this country. Uh, but even more importantly, because $52 billion, uh, I'll be honest, is a drop in the bucket compared to the investments that we need. We need to invest hundreds of billions of dollars. And the way you get there is by working with allies, because uh, guess who noticed that CHIPS Act? The Europeans did, the Japanese did, the South Koreans did, uh, the Israelis did. They all want to invest in their productions as well, which is fantastic because we need more supply um, of semiconductors um, from reliable allies where we don't have concerns about um, either weather-related disruptions or sort of pol political, geopolitical disruptions. And industry is also committed to investing. So Pat Gelsinger that you mentioned from Intel is committed to investing $20 billion. TSMC is going to invest um, over $100 billion. So that is all really, really important to keep investing together with industry, together with allies, huge amounts of money to um, keep production both at, of the leading edge, sort of the latest generation chips, but also the trailing edge as well. And <clears throat> that is, I, I think, one of the most critical issues from a national security perspective we can possibly have right now. So, so <clears throat> let me ask you a question about that. If you, you mentioned TSMC, which is a Taiwanese company, 
Um, you, you know, Foxconn is buying capability in, in the States. If we have a China-Taiwan problem, are you okay that TSMC and Foxconn, Taiwanese and Chinese companies, are building that capability in the States or does it need to be a U.S. company? So it I mean, depends always, on how they guess, build it. Take it over. So it depends on how they build it, right? So um, the traditional model that TSMC has had is to build a fab in the United States. They're talking about building one in Arizona right now. <clears throat> but all of the sort of engineering expertise, the process engineering expertise is still going to be in Taiwan, right? And that's a problem okay. because, you know, if there's an invasion and, and, and um, – the Chinese the expertise uh, doesn't escape, right? You know, um, you don't want to have complete dependency on uh, <clears throat> on Taiwan there. So it is important to figure out how do we invest in making sure that they are investing in education and training for people here or wherever they're building fabs to make sure that you don't have that dependency. So how does how then how is Silverado Policy Accelerator getting involved? <clears throat> Like how are how are you moving the needle on these critical national issues? So we we are deeply engaged with Congress. We're deeply engaged with administration on the details of thinking through how do we both invest more, but the other piece of this is how do we also stop China? <clears throat> I think exports controls are critical. We need to make sure that they don't get um, to win this race because if they do, I think it will be devastating for our national security. It will be de devastating for the world security. So we need to think about how do we prevent them from getting um, these advanced technologies um, and make sure that if we're going to spend money, if we're going to give industry billions of dollars, which is controversial in Congress, uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah. You know, some of these companies are some of the biggest companies on the planet. And there's a lot of pushback on both Republican and Democratic side of like, why are we giving them tens of billions of dollars more? We need to, <clears throat> I believe, but we need to make sure that there's strings attached and they can't turn around and ship that technology to China or do joint venture with China. Um, there's a story today as we're recording this podcast in the Wall Street Journal talking about how some of America's leading firms and venture capitalist um, operations have been investing massively in the semiconductor businesses in China. Well, that is insane. Right. We should not be doing that. We should not be letting them do that. So we absolutely need to, make, to look at our outbound investments and making sure that the technology that we're funding with our taxpayer dollars is not going to go over to China. Or, or even in our investment dollars. I mean, if you're in a mutual fund, you probably have no idea how much is being invested in Chinese technology on your behalf. Yeah. Right. But it's American money. I mean, I, I think about that all the time and, and there's not a lot you can do, but there is a tremendous amount of inv American investment going into China to prop up what I would call at least a, a, a near peer level adversary. That's right. You know, whether we're in outright conflict or not. And, and one of the um, uh, anecdotes that really hit me in the story in the Washington Journal today is that one of the companies that our venture capitalist firms are funding, the CEO of that company in China is literally saying that we're critical to making sure that China has complete independence on foreign sources of semiconductors for the leading chips. And, and it's sort of and like, why would American money. money be funding that? Well, I'm assuming because you can make money, yeah. right? Um, the, the fund managers can make money. So that's but, why. But we, we should be thinking about our national security. Imagine, you know, in 1930s, U.S. Uh, uh, companies funding uh, Nazi Germany, right? And we know some of them, unfortunately, did, uh, Henry Ford and some others. But um, 
you know, we're, we're doing this on a scale now that's, that's just completely unimaginable. Uh, but, you know, we're working hard with Congress. We're working hard with the administration to think about how, you know, if this bill does pass, which hopefully it will, how, how does that money go, where it needs to go right. to make sure we get the biggest bang for the buck. Um, we're going to have an event on December 7th uh, at 9 a.m. Eastern, uh, a virtual event that uh, all of your audience is invited to participate with a couple of leading Congress people um, on, uh, on, on the CHIPS Act and, and, and the need to secure our semiconductor supply chain. So it's really a super critical issue. We're trying to raise awareness. We're trying to uh, create, um, um, uh, you know, a lot of support for the need to making sure that we win this race. Okay, we'll get that in the show notes and, and publicize that also. Okay, Rachel, I know you want to get to the New York Times op-ed piece. And I think because that was September, we will see, uh, we'll have a whole lot of discussion around what's happened since then, I think. Absolutely. Well, and you know, the other piece that I, I, I like at this conversation, and you know my feelings on this, are, are offensive strategies, Eric. And, and I think from the, your Rachel Maddow interview oh and Krebs's oh Release the Hounds, uh, I, I think Dimitri is a I, fan of it. But go I, I would on. love for you to share your perspective here. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, first of all, release the hounds is, is actually uh, Patrick Gray from Rescue Business. That's okay. that's his uh, phrase. He's been advocating for a few years of the need to push uh, an offense here against these ransomware groups. So I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times outlining that strategy. Um, which I think is critical. It's a follow-up to some of the op-eds that we discussed on the previous podcast that, that I had in the Washington Post, talking about the need to confront Russia in a serious way. I still fundamentally believe that you will not be able to solve this ransomware issue without Russia. But in the absence of Russia without acting, their help. Right. and so far they don't appear to have done much, um, and, and I'm rapidly losing hope that they will, uh, but um, what can we do? Um, we shouldn't just give up. And I think that offensive strategy is really critical to slowing these groups down, impacting the operations, causing uh, disarray and um, um, distrust among the group members um, is really, really important. So um, what, what can that look like? Well, um, we actually just had a story in the Washington Post that Alan Nakashima broke uh, about a cyber command operation that was conducted against our evil, one of the top ransomware groups that hit Kaseya um, in July, that hit JBS food processor in June. And that operation was designed to- and didn't they also, weren't they part of DarkSide? No, DarkSide is a separate group. Pipeline um, too? Um, oh, I, th I, I thought they were, uh, they were somehow related. Okay. No, but, um, and DarkSide uh, rebranded themselves as Black Matter and they just recently shut down as well. Yeah. So they're getting a lot of pressure, but, but the important thing is that we're starting to launch these offensive operations. I think we need to focus a lot on the psychological impact. It's not enough just to start shut down their websites or servers. They're going to just reconstitute new ones. But if you can um, get them to feel like someone is watching their back, if you imagine, you know, you're criminal, even in Russia, and suddenly you get a text message on your phone that has a picture of your passport and your travel itinerary. Um, that would be pretty scary, right? Big Brother's watching. And your Interpol and, and your Interpol record where they're coming after you yeah. or something so, like that. Yeah, so some of those psychological elements can have a huge effect. A lot of these guys have already made a lot of money, tens of millions of dollars. So, um, you know, if they think that the full power of the U.S. intelligence community is coming after them, that's a scary proposition. Right. And it may drive them to say, you know what, we've made enough time to shut down 
time to diversify into other sources of um, uh, of business, um, hopefully a legitimate business. So like street crime or something a little ex- better. Exactly. So, so um, those things are really important, but also it's really important because these are not lone wolf operations. These are right. groups that are doing them. A lot of them don't even know each other in, in the personal lives. They don't even know each other's names. So it's easy to also cause distrust. Uh, you know, imagine if we steal money from uh, one member of the group, but blame it on another member of the group, um, the, the kinds of tensions that it would cause uh, within the group membership. So we need to start thinking creatively about this problem and thinking about what would impact them the most. Oftentimes, unfortunately, in, in the U.S. government, we tend to think about what can we do versus what should we do. And this is the one area where it's really, really important to take the view of the adversary, what is going to be most impactful to them, and focus our resources on that. So so we have seen this week a couple of arrests of our evil personnel. And some money seized, um, and, and right, I, Eric? I, I think $6.1 million. Yeah. Money. Well, that yeah. would... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember where the exact they, they, they did, they did oh, yeah, see right. $6 million. You're right. That was this week. Yes. Yeah, and and, and we were we're extraditing at least one of the uh, at least one right. of the guys arrested this week, and I think the Polish government, the uh, the Canadian Mounties, Romanian National Police were involved. So it, it's definitely more than just the United States that's getting involved in this. But the the interesting part, Dimitri, when you, when you mentioned the the cybercom component to it. That was really interesting to me because that is a, you know, if, you, if you think back to Operation Glowing Symphony, where they went after ISIS a couple years ago, going after after these, these ransomware groups, you know, you always think of Cyber Command as a national asset from a, you know, military perspective, but they're, they're going after criminals here who are attacking American infrastructure. I have for a long time said, if the Russians sent bombers over the United States, the Air Force would respond. If they put ships off our coast, the Navy would be there. And what I think I'm going to now say is we're starting to see Cyber Command respond when they put cyber capabilities into the United States that impact us in this conflict we're in right now. Fair statement? Absolutely. And by the way, I'm glad as an Army guy, you didn't diss our, our Army, uh, Air Force, and, and Navy about their ability to actually defend ourselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I try. You know, the Army will be there. I, you know, yes. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, but Cyber Command is getting active, is it, what it, it is. And General Nakasonia has been public on this that, you know, even a year ago, they would not have been. Um, he's been very clear that a year right. ago, the thinking was uh, ransomware, that's a criminal problem, law enforcement, go deal with it. Now, post-colonial, everything has changed. When you can impact the, the energy supplies on the East Coast by shutting down a pipeline or food supplies by just shutting down a meat processor and so forth, it becomes a critical national security concern and the military has to defend us against those types of threats. So it's fantastic that they've changed their modus operandi on this. It's fantastic that they're getting to the fight. Um, I want them to be more creative in how they're thinking about this problem. And not just, uh, you know, as the saying goes, to hammer everything looks like a nail. You know, if we have ability to shut down websites, let's not just do that because we have that ability. Let's think about the impact it will have and whether it will achieve the objectives that we want. Well, and, and creating that distrust. I know you've talked about that before, but I, I love I, I love that approach because then they don't know what's happening. And, and I'll give you an example. So the Arrival 
group went offline yeah. in the last few weeks. And, and why did they go offline? Right. Um, they actually, I have a piece coming out in Lawfare in the next few days on this, um, going through um, the study of, the, of, this, of this case, the cyber command operation and a foreign partner operation that actually took our, uh, place earlier in the year against our evil. And then how our evil is responding because it's really the first time, this is so fascinating, the first time we have seen a cyber operation, offensive operation against someone and real-time feedback from the um, a perpetrator that is being attacked on how that operation is going from their perspective because they're posting in real time on these underground forums what, from their view, they think is going on. What they're and, seeing. Um, okay. If you recall, after Kaseya, our evil went offline for a few, few months and they actually explained this recently of why they did that. And the reason they did that is because one of the group members goes by the nickname unknown, not very imaginary, imaginative, disappeared right after Kaseik. He went offline, uh, no one's heard a word from him, and they panicked. They're like, what is going on? Did Russian law enforcement crack down? Let's lay low until we can figure this out. Two months later, they hear nothing from the guy, but they also don't have any heat on them. Um, so they figure that maybe he wasn't arrested. They actually say they thought maybe he had died, and they're like, okay, let's go back to business. So in September, they resume operations. And then in October, Cyber Command launches this offensive operation that shut down, shuts down traffic to their tour site, to their blog, with a list of victims. And that actually causes them not to panic, but to actually look on their servers to figure out how is Cyber Command doing this? Did someone compromise our infrastructure and realize that they were indeed compromised, actually not by Cyber Command, according to Alan Nakashima's reporting, but by a foreign partner early in the year. And that's what got them to panic and say, wait a second, they're literally saying, someone is looking for us. Right. This is too much heat. We're off. Take care, guys. Um, so that was really fascinating that Cyber Command operation, while not directly causing them to go offline, actually got them to realize that they're being hacked. And that's what um, got them to, to be really um, scared of, of discovery, scared of losing their freedom, their identities being outed. And, and got them to shut down. We'll see if they stay shut down. It could be yet another case of, we'll go off for, for a couple of months and see if the heat di dissipates, but at least it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small victory that we've accomplished here. Yeah, I, I think the, the person who decided to target Colonial Pipeline never expected the president of the United States to get involved in that, in that ransomware attack, right? That, probably a big mistake and his or her buddies were saying, that was a big screw up, dumbass. Yeah. Right. I, I just, I, I imagine it went down somewhere like that with, with the Eastern European accents and everything, you know, but I can't imagine what it's like to be one of these cyber criminals where you think you have protection from the Russian government or whatever. And you realize now that the U.S. government is hunting you. That's right. Cyber command is looking into your life, or, or you don't even know. Maybe that's like like unknown disappearing. Did he ever resurface? No. That would freak right? me out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's worse than us posting a picture of him in Guantanamo Bay or something strung up, you know, on a torture rack. I think that the unknown of unknown, the unknown whereabouts of unknown <laughs> would probably freak me out. And then Cyber Command is reaching into your systems and other things are happening. The lights are flickering <laughs> or, you know, you have hair falling out after you wake up one morning and you see some extra hair on your pillow. Like I would start to lose my mind by not knowing 
what's happening, not knowing what the U.S. is doing to me yeah, or, or it, it anybody else. It could just else. be middle aging. I think that may be an effective <laughs> technique. Uh, but uh, it, it could. I, I love. Be, I love you, you going know. all Don Rumsfeld on me. The unknown unknowns. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't trying to channel Mr. Rumsfeld, and yeah, oh boy. Uh, but but seriously, not knowing, I think in many cases, what has happened. Did did he turn right. on us? Are we totally exposed? The, the, the fear you, you of the unknown a few is people. so powerful psychologically. It's, you know, exactly. you know, if you think about sort of the psychology of torture, the fear of torture is actually more powerful than the act itself. Right. Uh, than the torture itself. Because you don't know how bad it's going to be. And your mind goes in all, all sorts of directions that, um, uh, you know, potentially is even worse than any of the physical pain that you might experience. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. Which, by I the think, way, I'm not advocating so torture, cyber- just um, for, for, uh, for clarity here. Yeah, I'm actually okay with it, Rachel, but we'll leave that for a different podcast. You know, if it works, it works. Um, but but I, I agree with you, Dimitri. But I think Cyber Command could get very creative, to your point. And rather than just, you know, leaving on, on their servers, you know, a file that says Cyber Command was here and all their money is gone maybe just money disappearing randomly and, and people disappearing and, and creating that uncertainty as you were talking about, Dimitri, who, who took it? Did the U.S. government take it? Did the Russian government take it? Or did, did you know, Vlad, my partner over here who I haven't seen in three weeks for some reason take it? Like, I, I think that would be a great, in addition to the diplomacy, because we'll never get the well, Russians and, and the spreading Chinese rumors that people are collaborating with law enforcement, with the U.S. intelligence community. Yeah. I mean, a lot can be done to, to get these guys really, really paranoid. I mean, they're already paranoid. And to amplify it even further would have a lot of disruption, uh, disruption effects on their operations. So, so really, it's, it's technology for defense. It's policy but it's also this. What would what would we even call it? This these operations, these cyber these, offense. Release the hounds. I, I like uh, Patrick's term on this. Uh, but you know the other critical piece that we, we haven't talked about, but but actually is super important, um, is the cryptocurrency piece. Um, ah, and we yes. talked about this last yes. time. But um, something that the U.S. government has done, um, U.S. Department of Treasury has done in the last couple of weeks, is sanctions against cryptocurrency exchanges. They've now sanctioned two of them. Suex in Moscow and, and another one affiliated with Suex um, just um, this week. Um, that is really critical because ultimately these criminals are getting their cryptocurrency, they're getting their Bitcoins, getting their Moneros as ransom payments. But you know what? You can't yet, I don't think, buy a Lamborghini with Bitcoin. You can buy a lot of stuff now, but, but not yeah, yet. But- a lot of things you need, you can't buy food and so forth. So they still need to convert that into fiat currency. They need to convert it into dollars. They need to convert it into euros. And the exchanges are how they do this. And there's these exchanges that cater almost exclusively to criminal activity. With SUEX, over half of all their transactions were illicit transactions, either cybercrime related, drug trafficking, all sorts of nefarious things. So by shutting down these nefarious actors with um, sanctions, the power of the U.S. global sanction regime, um, you can have a huge effect, uh, effects on the ability of criminals to monetize um, their criminal activity. So um, this is something that I know the administration, that Ann Neuberger uh, over at the White House is working very hard on to make sure that we have an alliance of countries um, that are all, all care about this ransom problem 
and that all can um, do more to enforce anti-money laundering regulations, um, know your customer regulations, tracking down these nefarious exchanges, enforcing sanctions against them. That would have a huge effect, not just on ransomware itself, but on a huge swath of criminal activity from tax evasion to money laundering and, and other forms of cybercrime. But don't you need government involvement? Like if the Russian government doesn't get involved, can't they convert that into rubles and then into dollars? Obviously, they'll pay a higher transaction fee, but they still have they still have outlets to transact. Look, there's no question that without, without Russia, we're not going to solve this problem. So they're absolutely critical okay. on many fronts. But we can do a lot, even in the absence of Russian cooperation, to make it really, really difficult and to lower the number of operations that can be conducted, the number of people that are doing it. So we should be doing everything we can to make sure that our hospitals, our school districts, our police departments, our small businesses, our energy companies, our water supply um, are not being hit on a daily basis by these criminals as they are today. And and putting defensive tools in operation is not the answer. Well, it is part of the answer, but it won't solve everything. But not not solely. The school system will never be able to protect themselves from the GRU or from ransomware artists. And I hate to use the word artist, but ransomware personnel in Russia who are who are protected. Artists, yes. Um, And and as I said in my New York Times op-ed, we will not defend ourselves out of this problem. That is very clear. You did say that, yeah. Yeah. You also said diplomacy with Russia, even if it succeeds, will not be sufficient. Yes. And what I mean by that, that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up, is that ransomware does not just emanate out of Russia. In fact, when you look at the arrests that have been made with these Arriva affiliates, um, they were done in Romania, they were done in Kuwait, they were done in Poland uh, of, a, uh, of a Ukrainian national who was residing there. So the affiliates themselves are in a lot of places. Now, the core gangs, many of them are still in Russia. Uh, but not all of them. And we've now seen gangs out of Iran. We've seen um, gangs out of China. In fact, most of them are contractors for the Chinese government that are doing operations to steal our intellectual property on behalf of the Chinese government. And on the side, they're engaging in ransomware attacks to uh, put more cash in their pockets. And we've seen operations out of North Korea where the, it's the regime in that situation that's actually doing these, um, these attacks to finance their missile programs and nuclear programs, et cetera, and evade sanctions. So you absolutely um, have to appreciate that this is broader than just Russia. Russia is a huge part of this problem. But even if magically tomorrow Putin decides to crack down and help us solve the ransomware problem in Russia, it will not solve all of ransomware. Yeah, we still have other problems. We still have other problems. Who's number two in your mind? Um, Probably Iran. North Korea, for whatever reason, they've engaged in some ransomware operations, but they've been really focused on stealing cryptocurrency directly by targeting exchanges. They've been targeting banks as well. Um, So, um, you know, I'm waiting for when they go big into ransomware. I think it's inevitable. But for whatever reason, they've they've kept it to pretty low level so far. I think the um, the diplomacy element is, is a really fascinating discussion. Dimitri, I mean, I think you've had people say, is that should we have a cyber UN? I mean, it's obviously, it seems like there's so many pathways here to address and, you know, not one's going to get us there. Uh, I mean, how do you see us getting ahead of this, really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not in favor of 
using the UN, I think that this comes down to uh, bilateral diplomacy. It's, mm -hmm. it's about realizing that cyber cannot be disconnected from the core geopolitical concerns. I mean, why is it Russia, China, Iran, North Korea that present all these challenges in cyber? Well, that's not an accident. It's because these are the primary geopolitical foes right. that we have um, because of right. a, a variety of um, uh, policies that their governments have that, that are antagonistic to ours and, and vice versa from their perspective. So um, cyber is just another tool in their arsenal to hit back at us, an asymmetric tool that allows them to have um, oversized power over our econ economy and national security. So um, without appreciating that, um, that fact, we're not going to get anywhere because, you know, when we're talking right now to the Russians on ransomware, you can bet that they're linking this to other issues that we're talking to them about, like arms control, like Ukraine and many other things. And if they're going to concede to us on this one issue, they're going to expect concessions from us right. in other areas. Um, and that's what I would do if I were in their shoes. Um, so we need to, to realize that you can't just constrain it to a cyber dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a very complex, <laughs> complicated landscape. Uh, but I, I love all the things that you're doing to take action, Dimitri. And it's, you know, I, I, I hope more people kind of, you know, take that signal as well, because that's the only way if we start getting more people into the industry in, into your point, we need more, you know, education programs, uh, to, to get folks, you know, understanding the, the geopolitical landscape in addition to the technical side. Cause I, I think it's only going to start swaying more and more geopolitically, I, I think to your earlier point. Um, but I, I, I'm so excited for the Alperovich Institute. Uh, I, I just can't say enough great things about it. Um, congratulations on, on getting that started. Thank you so yeah, much. I think you need to infuse creativity. I mean, some of the things you've spoken about previously, we've talked about today, getting out of the same old way we've always done things from a political perspective. I, I think there's, if, if you can find ways to infuse creativity, you know, disappearing Mr. Unknown, um, having money just randomly. Like, how do you get the average government policymaker to think outside right. of the box? We've got 200 plus years of, of diplomatic uh, techniques we've used and we've learned, some of them very effective, but this is a new world, right? right? So sanctions aren't the only answer. And I think we turn to sanctions right. all the time. They're part of the answer. Well, and, and, and but they're mostly not effective, particularly the sanctions that we have done frankly, over the years, uh, sanctioning an intelligence officer or even a, a leader of an intelligence agency will do absolutely nothing. They're following the orders. They're, right. they're not going to change their behavior one iota because we sanctioned them. Um, but, you know, sanctioning... And they're not going to St. Pete Beach for vacation. Yeah, so sanctioning cryptocurrency exchanges, I think, is really important and it's a great way to use sanctions. So we, we just need to think about the impact that we're causing right. and not just feel good because we did something uh, because it was easy for us to do. Uh, but look, um, you know, you have a great audience on your podcast. Hopefully people that are listening uh, are um, engaged in this fight. Um, hopefully they're taking notes right now. You know, if they want to contact me, please go to Silverado.org um, and, um, and send us a note. Happy to talk more about the ideas we have on this front and many other fronts that we discuss. Yeah, get creative, Absolutely. people. Get creative out there. Okay, Rachel, our time has come to an end with yes. Mr. Alperovich. yes. Take us home. Take us well, home. Thank you so much, Dimitri, for joining us today. 
I, I this is a wonderful discussion. It's you know I, I feel like I learn so much all the time, but um, we're only scratching the surface too. We only have this limited amount of time to get into these really deep subjects. But thank you so much for sharing your insights. Um, you know, and, and to all of our listeners out there, you know, thanks for joining us again this week. And as always, smash the subscribe button and we'll come right to your inbox every single Tuesday. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.